Well, let's change it up and just do a, a show with questions. The Cozy Robot Show. Hey, Cozy Robots, I'm Mike McCarg, and welcome to The Cozy Robot Show, which is a program about how we understand our feelings and how to make a world that we'd all like to live in together. I see your comments coming in right now from YouTube and Facebook and Twitch and Twitter. My goodness, we have people watching everywhere tonight. So exciting. If you're listening after the fact on uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify or any podcast player, I do want to let you know that The Cozy Robot Show is also available on social video platforms, including as a live program. That happens Monday evenings at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. And uh, gosh, it is great to see everybody. <laughs> Lots of comments this week right up top. Thank you so much. I really enjoy seeing you all here while we record the program together. And uh, I want to remind you as all that we, as always, we do have a community of Cozy Robots that gets together uh, after the show. So you can learn how to join us at CozyRobots.com on Discord, which is kind of a social gaming platform. Tonight, we are going to be playing the hit game Among Us together. It's tons of fun. And I also, to get the announcements out of the way briefly, right here at the start, at the start, we'll let you know that we are trying to work on a series highlighting the experiences of essential workers in our society. So doctors, nurses, uh, Postmates delivery drivers, uh, rideshare delivery drivers, uh, postal workers, anybody who is an essential worker out there making our society happen at this difficult time, we'd love to We'd love to talk with you. So uh, if you're interested in, um, you know, uh, joining us, just go to CozyRobots.com to the Ask Mike section where uh, you can send in, I guess, a question <laughs> letting us know who you are. And uh, we'd just love to have you on the show. So uh, that's what we're working on right now. I see we have questions coming in from the comments. We might do some of that. Oh, and that's a great point. Uh, as Stephanie Tate has mentioned, the magic show that we talked about last week will be next week as my good friend Taylor is uh, on a camping trip with his family. So next week we will have the magic show after party, which you do not want to miss. It's going to be incredible. That's going to be my friend Taylor Hughes is an incredible magician performing live uh, for our after party. So that's going to be really, really exciting. So let's kind of uh, get past announcements and into the show proper. Uh, you know, we've been talking a lot about what the Cozy Robot Show is, or more specifically, how to communicate that with people. I mean, it's multi-format, which is confusing enough. Yeah, it's a podcast, but it's also on Instagram TV, but it's also on YouTube, but it's live, but it's recorded. You can listen wherever you want. <laughs> it's... So the format's confusing because we want the show to be like wherever you're at in your life. We want it available. Um, you know, and I kind of talk about um, our feelings a lot on the program. And I talk about um, science a lot on the program. Those are things that don't really go together. We talk about justice a lot. We talk about ways to make uh, the world a place that we'd all like to live in. And what does all that have to do with each other? Um, and we were trying to figure out, like, what 
is the combination of these things. What are you trying to do with the show? And I've thought a lot about critical thinking and critical thinking skills and how often we aren't sure what's real in media because we, we don't have the training or the education or the experience to pick apart media narratives. Uh, but I also think about how often movements centered around skepticism become extremely cerebral and extremely detached from people's feelings and their daily experiences. So on the one hand, I think skepticism is really important. And on the other hand, you know, I think sometimes skepticism by itself leads us to cynicism. And cynicism, although a very useful defense mechanism against difficult feelings, isn't helpful in solving problems that people face. Because if we can't understand and accommodate the emotional aspect of people's lives, we'll never be able to understand them or work with them or, or make progress. So I think empathy is incredibly important. And I've been thinking a lot about the combination of those two things for skepticism and empathy. And basically what the Cozy Robot Show, right in the name, Cozy and Robot, two things that don't usually go together, I'd like us to figure out how to promote empathetic skepticism in our lives, a deep understanding of each other's feelings and experiences connected with critical thinking with asking difficult questions. I basically want to earn your trust emotionally and teach you how to question and evaluate the claims that I make when I talk with you. Because if you're testing and evaluating what I'm saying, then you'll do that with anything you hear from any person in the media or in your personal life. And that would make our world kind of more healthy, more just, more verdant. You know, and I think that's really applicable right now. I'm seeing so many comments across all our platforms about the election and what we're going to do with this major, major event happening in the United States tomorrow. So depending on when you listen to this program, if you're listening live, the election is tomorrow. If you're listening, you know, very soon after it comes out on social video platforms as a relay, you're listening as the election is happening on Tuesday or if you're listening on Wednesday or later, the election has happened, but the results still might be at large. In fact, it's very likely we're not going to quickly know who the president of the United States is. Empathetic skepticism is incredibly important right now. Oh, gosh, I'm seeing so many good friends out there. Uh, hey, Trippy. Um Empathetic skepticism is going to be necessary to get us through globally the next few weeks. Why skepticism? Skepticism because a lot of claims are going to be flying around. And we want to be very careful about not taking at face value anything we see or hear or read. There's going to be a lot of misinformation out there, both intentional and unintentional. When people attempt to report information quickly, often factual fidelity is lost. And then other people will intentionally try to deceive us. But skepticism alone is not going to get us through this election cycle. Empathy is going to need to be a part of it as well. Why? Empathy will help us understand our own feelings the emotional toll that 
difficult circumstances place on each and every one of us. Empathy will help us understand that people who are more impacted by policies of the United States government may be more severely emotionally impacted by the ongoing drama around the United States presidential election. Empathy can help us navigate relationships with care during a difficult time in history. Empathetic skepticism, I think, is not only the key to the 2020 election cycle, but towards a society that is healthy and cohesive and doesn't leave any member of society behind. So, let's be cozy robots together, and let's have some empathetic skepticism. So... (laughs) Tonight, we've got a really special show planned. It is called Ask Mike Anything. You know, the Cozy Robot Show is, uh, gosh, I guess the the latest iteration of a program that's been running for a long time. Uh, This program was originally called Ask Science Mike, and every week I took questions from my listeners uh, of a podcast and just responded to them in kind of a grab bag manner. There was no theme to the programs generally. It's just whatever questions came up. And although we have really, 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 really enjoyed moving to a format model for the Cozy Robot Show, we've enjoyed having guests more often, uh, we have a lot of people saying, hey, could you bring back some of the question programs? Uh, That'd be a neat treat. So this week, uh, the show is going to be uh, all around um, that old format uh, in in something we're calling um, Ask Mike Anything. Hi Mike, I uh, hope you're doing well. Quick one from me. I saw a thing recently about emails and the carbon emission output of emails. Um, the question was, do they really have a large carbon output, as is suggested by the book um, How Bad Are Bananas by Mike Berners-Lee? Um, in this Instagram post that I saw recently, they were just talking about the fact that we should go about deleting our emails um because of the fact that they're sitting on a server and that's taking up obviously electric output and and all of that what do you think um should we be deleting our emails or is there some bigger fish to fry here you know should we stop sending videos to each other what happens to production companies um film film companies like that you know should they be only working offline any advice any thoughts love to hear um do emails have a large carbon footprint. You would think about it like when we started to do email and digital communications, we thought, this is great. This is going to save so much energy. We're not going to ship packages all the time. We're not going to ship envelopes everywhere. We can just virtually send information with no trouble at all. And what a great experience that would have been. (laughs) Except we're sending more and more and more. I haven't tried turning it off and on again because that would end the stream. Um, So... I am 100% certain that if I quit my streaming program and reopen it, the videos will just play normally and with no problem. Uh, But if I do that, the stream will end. So I think we're just going to have to, we'll just have to vamp and uh, (laughs) do it the old-fashioned way. So do emails have a carbon footprint? And uh, (laughs) so for those of you in podcast land, I'm getting suggestions to turn the computer off and on again by JD. And then Eli on Facebook is saying I should try putting my computer in rice for a minute, which is really funny. 
Anyway, um, so when we talk about carbon footprints, um, when you do it well, you have a methodology for estimating the total carbon footprint for a given activity or product. So if we were talking about this pin's carbon footprint, it would not be complete if we just talked about how much carbon is released in like making the plastic. We also have to include the carbon impact that went into the assembly of the plastic pieces, as well as the shipping of the pen around the world. This is all pretty intuitive and obvious stuff. But I just want to, I want you to start with something physical before we go to something virtual. We might think about the costs uh, of marketing the pen. We might think about all the ways that activities related to getting this pen from somebody's head into my hand. A lot of that involves releasing carbon in the atmosphere because our energy supply chains use a lot of carbon. Fossil fuels are a major part of our energy supply chain. And when we think about email, if you're going to figure out the carbon footprint of an email, you can't just think about electrical generation because emails require what? phones and computers and servers. You can't like read an email with your mind. There has to be a device. And then those devices have to be manufactured. They have to be shipped. And then they have to be operated with electricity. And that's all a big deal. Now, when we talk about the carbon footprint of emails or videos, like if we're watching YouTube videos or storing videos on our computer, if we are doing a good job with our methodology, we will include the manufacture and distribution of the hardware, the physical infrastructure, both that we use personally and that exists, quote unquote, in the cloud for that carbon footprint. Now, here's the problem. When technologists and energy experts and climate advocates share information with that methodology in mind, we will get a narrative from people saying, okay, I want to lower my carbon footprint. I need to send fewer emails or take fewer pictures. It is true that any information that you process or store does use energy and that the more information you have, the more infrastructure is required. That is true. But the bigger deal in your carbon footprint with your email is how often you buy equipment to be involved in your data usage. What do I mean? Are you on the iPhone upgrade program? Do you get a new iPhone every year or every two years? Because that carbon footprint that environmental impact is much higher than if you send email all day, every day on a device that you keep for five years. You see the difference. As a total amount of energy usage, the manufacture and distribution of the devices, be they a mobile device or a big desktop computer or a server, that's the lion's share of it. So if you buy a new computer, and then send less email, it would be better to not buy a new computer for as long as you can 
avoid doing so. Or instead of buying a whole new computer, if you can, upgrade pieces of it. Now, that's not always plausible with a laptop or whatever, but you see my general point. The less we manufacture and distribute, generally, the lower our carbon footprint. Now, if we think about data centers, these are the, the places where we keep all the computers that do our cloud stuff. Google lives in a data center. Amazon lives in a data center. All the stuff that makes those dot-coms operate. They are about 1% of global energy consumption, and that is a lot, 1%. One out of every 100% of electrical energy generated go to a data center. But if you think about how much a role data centers play in our daily lives, they are actually remarkably efficient. The aggregate of all our actions determines how many servers get built and how many servers get deployed. So in general, if we do send fewer emails and if we do save less videos and transmit less videos, fewer servers are needed. But it would be far more efficient for us to buy products less often, use products longer, and focus on green power generation. Because, for example, energy produced by a hydroelectric dam is not generating carbon into our atmosphere, nor if it's with wind or solar. Or at least it's generating much less. Again, total carbon footprint would include the manufacture of the turbines in a renewable energy source. So. The low-hanging fruit here is not sending less emails. It's keeping and using your devices longer. Okay, that's the first question. The next question is going to be a lot easier because it came in via an email message, which means I can just read it. And this question says, Hi, Mike. First of all, thank you for all you've done. I've loved your podcast for years. I have a question. The Bible states that people used to live crazy amounts of years, such as Noah, who supposedly lived until he was 920. Does science support that? And if not, why would the Bible lie about that? Thank you again for everything. Heart emoji. Okay, so I think in 2020, um, it's really important that we create the space to talk about spiritual things. And spiritual questions, especially those that relate to Christianity. The, um, the way we are taught and conditioned to evaluate information, if we talk about empathetic skepticism, people's relationship with the Bible plays a very, very uh, large role in how skeptical or not we are, how critically we think or not. And when we look at it historically, the way that many of us who are Christians uh, were taught to relate to the Bible um, is a pretty, when we look at the way people read the Bible in the United States especially, and this is almost a uniquely American phenomenon, although it has been exported to other parts of the world, when we understand the Bible as... Um, literal. That's a pretty strange thing, historically and globally. You know, the Bible was written by a lot of people over several thousand years, okay? Uh, yeah, thank you. I'm glad your night was made, Jacob. I really am looking at comments while I do the show. Uh, I can't see them all. There's a lot of them, but the ones I see, I, I do see. Okay, so the Bible isn't a book. 
The Bible's a bunch of books written by a bunch of people over a long period of time. And when we think about questions like, is the Bible lying about something? I think what we're doing is just reading the Bible in an overly simplistic way because we are people living in the 21st century. And the Bible was not written in the 21st century. In fact, none of the Hebrew Bible, which has often been called the Old Testament, or the Christian Bible, which is often called the New Testament, neither of those volumes of books were written in English or with a modern context, and certainly not with Americans in mind when they were written. I'd like you to think for a second about how strange it is to read something that was written in the 1700s or the 1800s, how strange it sounds to our ears today. Now think about something from the 1400s. Heck, think about when you try to read Shakespearean literature. How it sounds strange to your ears is actually kind of hard to understand. All right, so I want you to hold that in mind. Now think about this. What if I said, Summer is a million times hotter than winter in Phoenix. If I said that, would you think that I literally meant that summer in Phoenix, Arizona is one million times hotter than the winter in Phoenix? Of course, you would not think that I am making a literal claim. You would say, oh, he is speaking figuratively. He's using a million to mean a lot. All right. So now, what if someone was reading a transcript of this podcast a thousand years from now? Would they at first think that I thought that Phoenix in the summer is hotter than the surface of the sun, <laughs> right? They, they might. They might say, wow, this Mike McCarg guy way back in 2020 really didn't understand temperature because they would be misunderstanding what I meant when I used a number, a million, in the context of a sentence. And it's probably the same way when we talk about numbers in the Bible. Now, let's be real. Scholars don't know exactly how ancient people related to numbers. There were lots of theories. We do know, for example, that seven was extremely significant among the societies that wrote the early scriptures. We do know that in general, we see a lot of numbers that end with a zero, a three, a seven, or a nine in a way that doesn't match if numbers were truly um, numerical. There's a numerology at play when we read ancient scriptures that is frankly largely lost on us. So when we read how old Moses or Methuselah or any of these ancient figures were, we should not read that like the Bible is making a literal claim of numbers of years any more than it would speak of political dynasties lasting thousands of years. And we should understand instead that we lack the cultural key, the cultural context to understand exactly what the original authors meant there. And in fact, it takes a lot of scholarship to relate to those kinds of ideas. And the Cozy Robot Show would not be possible without the support of our sponsors. So uh, we want to tell you first about KiwiCo. KiwiCo is a wonderful company. They create hands-on products for kids of all ages that make learning about science, technology, engineering, and art, math 
fun. Every crate, which is their lines of different products, are designed by experts and tested by kids and mailed direct to your home every month. Now, we get Kiwi crates in our home. We love the different lines for children, but I've got older teens now. My wife and I are adults, and we particularly enjoy the Eureka lines and the lines that are for people up to ages 104 plus. Okay? So... What comes in each box? Each box is delivered monthly, and it comes with everything you need. All the supplies. There'll be no emergency Amazon or grocery store trips to complete a KiwiCo product. They are wonderful ways to learn and hands-on ways that help us get away from our screens and spend quality time together as families learning in a way that is totally fun. Now, with KiwiCo's hands-on art and science projects, kids can engineer a walking robot, design a paint pendulum, uh, conduct bubbling, chemistry experiments, and more, all from the comfort of your home. And you can get 50% off your first month by going to KiwiCo.com and use promo code COZYROBOTS. That's K-I-W-I-C-O.com. And use the pro promo code COZYROBOTS to get 50% off your first month's service. Man, lots more folks on Twitch tonight. That's so cool. Okay. Our second sponsor tonight for the Cozy Robot Show is my very, very, very favorite of all the sponsors because this episode was brought to you by you, all the Cozy Robots who support this program. There's a group of people, several hundred strong, that make this show financially possible. And we hang out all week on Discord together. So if you become a Cozy Robot, not only do you get exclusive content on uh, Patreon, you get access to extra events, and we do an after party every week. You can go to CozyRobots.com to learn how to join us. The Cozy Robot Show. Hi, Mike. Uh, so I've been interested in nutrition and what's really best for our bodies and minds for a while now. Personally, I've tried all sorts of diets, from the paleo diet to being a vegetarian to going dairy-free during the breastfeeding period because my son had a cow milk protein allergy. Um, uh, and recently we've tried plant-based diets. Currently we're trying to limit our animal food intake, but we, um, you know, we're definitely not always successful there. Uh, so I'm leaning towards believing the plant-based experts such as Dr. Gregor, Dr. Caldwell, who did the uh, China studies, I think. Um, so the China studies, it sounds very convincing, but is it really as simple as to be able to say animal-derived products are bad for human health? Uh, I'd love your insight there, and, and what you know, I'd love to hear what we really know based on the science we have right now. Uh, thanks so much for any input you have, um, and love what you do. Bye-bye. Are plant-based diets truly healthier for human beings? There's a lot of experts out there talking more and more about the value of plant-based diets and the dangers of animal products, and we were looking for some guidance to separate fact from fiction. And on that point, it is really, 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 really hard to talk about the ideal diet. <laughs> the comments are so funny. It is really hard. Uh, because there's disagreement among experts about what the ideal diet even is. 
At the same time, there's incredible agreement or consensus among experts about what is like more healthy generally versus less healthy in our eating patterns. And I just want to point out one word in particular here, and that word is diet. The very word diet makes this even harder to discuss together because diets are bad. But diets apply to everybody. When we use these two words, the same word with different meanings, it introduces confusion. A diet as a temporary change in eating patterns with weight loss as the goal is terrible every time. We have great science supporting the fact that diets simply do not work. They don't work. They contribute to a lot of dysfunction in our culture. They help produce and create patterns of disordered eating and people everywhere, diets are bad. But if we, when we say diet, we simply mean everything a person eats, which is kind of a more clinical understanding or clinical usage of the word diet, well, then a diet is just fine. Everybody has a diet, right? So I, I, I want to point out that difference is very important. I hope it's not too subtle. Um, I will not talk about a diet, in other words, a temporary way of eating in a way that causes one to lose weight at all in this answer, but I will definitely talk about diet in terms of the composition of the foods that we eat all the time, okay? So, we do ourselves a disservice when we think about diets. I'm going to focus on what we eat all the time. And I might use the word diet, but I mean what we eat all the time. I have stopped thinking about temporary patterns of eating with a goal, and now I only think about what I eat all the time forever. Okay. Here's what we know. I actually think we talk too much about vegetarianism versus not vegetarianism generally. Because... Whether or not an all-plant-based diet is best, we know for sure most Western people just eat too much meat and too many processed foods for their body and for their activity levels, right? Just too much meat and way too many processed foods. And we know the health outcomes associated with those patterns of eating are not good. So if we just start there, should you be eating more plant-based foods? That is true for almost anyone. Almost anyone should be eating more plant-based foods today than they are already. Now, if we go a little deeper down here and we look at studies, there are some studies, observational studies, by the way, these are not uh, commission studies. They're not double blind. These are looking at outcomes across populations, controlling for what you can control for, which is what an observational study is. A few observational studies suggest, and I'm using the word suggest on purpose here. I'm not saying they indicate. I'm not saying that they have definitively found. I'm saying that some studies suggest or raise the possibility that eating a vegan diet, a vegan diet being one that includes no animal products and no 
animal protein whatsoever, has worse health outcomes for people than what we would call a vegetarian or pescatarian diet that includes at least occasional consumption of animal products. I'll say that again. Some studies suggest that a vegan diet has worse health outcomes than a vegetarian or pescatarian diet, specifically with regard to cardiovascular concerns, heart attack, and stroke. Now, I want to be really clear that it is hard to study the impacts of nutrition. Because in general, we would say that vegetarians are healthier than the general population, or when you compare to people uh, who eat high amounts of meat in their diet. But is that because vegetarians eat plants or because they are generally health conscious and also generally more affluent to things that are linked to improved health outcomes and the very difficult to control for, especially the health conscious part? Now, it is a reasonable assumption that vegetarians are healthier in large part because they eat large amounts of plant matter. But I just want to make the point that our nutrition cannot be reduced. We can't take it to a single component because there is no ideal diet. Again, a diet being the body of everything you eat and drink. There's no such thing as an ideal diet. Your individual genetics will help determine which foods support your overall health more or less. If you are genetically predisposed towards diabetes or high blood pressure, you might need to eat different foods than someone who is, for example, genetically predisposed to having very low cholesterol. And in addition to our genetics, our lifestyle plays a role in what nutrition best supports our overall health. So we should remember that our health can't be reduced to just genetics or just diet or just exercise, that all these things work together. I think probably for most people, a diet that is majority plant-based and whole foods is important. But I think more important than being plant-based is reducing the amount of processed foods we eat. You know, there are lots of vegetarian treats these days. Food companies are catching on. We want more plant-based food in our diet. And so they are figuring out how to load up plant-based foods with salt and sugar so they are just as addictive and compulsive eating generating as the snacks we have today that are not. You know, I could think of many, many, many vegetarian and vegan crunchy chip options that really aren't any better for you than potato chips that have been fried in grease. So reducing our processed foods, I think, is very important. And then increasing the amount of foods that are plant-based, whole, and have dietary fiber supports overall health goals. And as we remember this, we also need to know that while a lot of us are looking for the ideal diet, trying to take our nutrition to the pinnacle of what is possible for us personally, many communities around the world don't have access to healthy plant-based food options today. So perhaps one thing we can do is work together to get a good enough diet 
available to everyone, even if it means we don't have time to find the perfect diet for ourselves. The Michael Pollan quote uh, that Caleb is sharing on YouTube, eat food, not too much, mostly plants, is absolutely terrific advice. Here's a, another question that came in. This one is from email. It says, hey, my name is Kevin. I love your show. I am interested to hear about the science behind lucid dreaming. Many people claim to have the ability to control their dreams. And I've had some experiences where I realized I was in a dream. But what is the science behind this? Is there a way to fully control your dreams? Lucid dreaming. You know, I remember the first time I heard about lucid dreaming. I was a very, very young person, uh, still a child. I remember being astounded at the very concept. One of my friends who uh, read all the time told me about lucid dreaming, and I was so skeptical. I was like, that doesn't sound possible. It sounds wonderful, but it doesn't sound possible. And so I set about trying to figure out how I could control my dreams because I've always wanted to be able to fly. And I thought, well, if I knew I was dreaming, I could make myself fly. And I had terrible nightmares as a child. And I thought, well, if I could know I was dreaming in those nightmares, I could make them less scary. And so I started practicing while I was awake testing if I was awake or not. I would look at a clock. I just looked at clocks. I never knew what time it was. So I thought that was a good way to tell if I was dreaming or not. And sure enough, after trying that for weeks and weeks and thinking about lucid dreaming, and as I was falling asleep, stating that I wanted to be able to control my dreams, it finally happened. I was sleeping and I realized I was asleep and I woke right up. I mean, just immediately. As soon as I realized that I was dreaming, I woke up. And then I was so excited I could not go back to sleep. <laughs> so, you know, before we get to the science of lucid dreaming, I just want to say it is real. It does exist. I uh, am a pretty regular lucid dreamer. I don't do it on purpose anymore. There was a long stretch of my life where I did fly in my dreams or uh, lift mountains out of the surface of the earth or all those kind of wonderful things you can do. And I did learn to kind of thread the needle between it's like the more control and awareness I had, the more I would tend to wake up. And so learning to kind of stay in that zone. And, um, well, we'll return to the dream world in a second. Well, let's talk about the neuroscience for a second. And, and this is very important. Neuroscientists are not sure exactly how lucid dreaming works. It is hard to run neurological imaging studies on lucid dreaming. People who can lucid dream, you know, they, some, some studies estimate that as many as half of us have lucid dreamed at least once. But in terms of people who can lucid dream kind of regularly on and on demand, that's a rare group. And then people who can do that while being inside of a brain imaging device is rare indeed. And you have to get the funding, you know, of everything we're trying to figure about humanity. 
There's a lot more things we want to know about the brain than there are brain imaging machines. And so the access to brain imaging hardware is expensive. And so research that involves brain imaging tends to need a lot of funding. And it's just, I imagine, pretty hard to write your grant on, I would like to understand the neurological implications of lucid dreaming. <laughs> it's just, it's not an easy way to get some science funded. And um, now it is possible one, one little piece of imaging we have indicates that it may, may be related to the relative size of the prefrontal cortex. That's the patch of tissue right behind our forehead where our uh, executive function lives, where our analytical reasoning lives. Those things originate in the prefrontal cortex. And it's possible that people who have larger prefrontal cortices lucid dream more often. That's about as far as we've gotten. We don't totally understand even, you know, REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep is when we dream. Uh, we have episodes of the night that start brief and then get longer as the night goes on in a normal sleeping pattern. We don't even totally understand neurologically how dreams work at all. There's some really wonderful hypotheses but there are genuine disagreement among experts on the mechanics of REM sleep, much less lucid dreaming. In my experience, the lucid dreaming can really impact your sleep quality. It somehow seems to lessen your REM sleep cycle. You can feel really tired after you lucid dream. Your sleep is somehow less satisfying. Uh, and there is some data to, to, back that up. And the other thing that's really strange, at least for me, I, you know, I, again, I lucid dreamed for years and I found that over time, my dreams started to kind of rebel. They stopped being so compliant. The people in my dream would seem to be upset when I became aware that they were just my own imagination. And sometimes in really disturbing ways, if I was having a nightmare that I would try to shut down through lucid dreaming, the nightmare would continue and I would have kind of this detachment from it, but I had no ability to control it. And then I found that if I would try to fly in my lucid dreams, sometimes I couldn't. And in fact, these days, it's been going on for years. If I try to fly in a lucid dream, I can only get a few inches off the ground and kind of hover in a strange way. And then sometimes I'll lucid dream and I feel almost intoxicated. I notice that all my um, logical faculties just aren't working. Uh, and of course they aren't. I'm dreaming. So I want to be clear if you've never lucid dream, what you don't just be you, the full you in a dream, because huge parts of your brain are offline. You're in a sleep cycle. So it's not like you can, you know, if you bring too much of your, your brain into a wakeful and operational state, you'll just stop sleeping. You know, I remember I used to try to do math in lucid dreams, and I figured out you really can't do math in a lucid dream. It will wake you up. And so I just want to point out that some people get obsessed with lucid dreaming. Um, and you can try it. There's nothing wrong with trying it. But understand that, like, an obsession with lucid dreaming, trying to take it to its farthest ends, you know, it's not always going to suit your needs or desires. 
And uh, I guess I'm just at the age where I'd rather have a satisfying night's sleep than control over my dream. So these days when I lucid dream, it is always by accident. Okay. So uh, quite a conversation happening on Twitch about comments tonight. So I don't know what's happening there. I do want to let you know that no matter where you're watching, if you see something called Restream Bot, that is the platform we use to aggregate all the uh, comments together, right? So that's why you can see what someone else is posting. And if it's Restream Bot without saying it's someone else, that's if I'm typing in the Restream chat console like this. I'm going to type, hi, it's me. And you'll see that's what it looks like when I drop into the chat as well. So, okay. So this has been a wild episode. Let us know what you thought about this Ask Mike About episode. Maybe imagine that it went well. <laughs> and if this is something you'd like to see uh, more often. And then in just a few minutes, uh, why don't you join us for the after party? Tonight we're going to be playing... Among Us Together, and next week, listen, do not miss Taylor Hughes doing a magic show for the Cozy Robots on Discord. As always, you can like and subscribe to the program on YouTube and other social channels. And of course, the Cozy Robot Show is made by the most talented and supportive team in the entire world of media. I'd like to thank the people who make the show possible, which is each and every Cozy Robot. The show is produced by Tanner Hearn, Victory Palmazano, and Greg Nordine. Music by Madison McCarg and Macy McCarg. Production support by Andrew Galucky. Production support and my assistant is Caitlin Hermstad. Designed by Sydney Smith. Motion graphic design by Landon Satterfield. Set designed by Jesse Lane Interiors. And my wardrobe stylist, I cut my beard just so you could see the collars on the shirts she picked out for me, is Jenny McCarg. Thanks so much for joining us tonight, and I can't wait to see you again very soon. Take care, friends. The Cozy Robot Show.